I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 will be in verses 4 through 9 this morning. We've been walking through Christ-centered worship, a theology and philosophy of worship. We spent a couple of weeks here thus far. We began in Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, where we saw that it's the word of God that drives our worship. And then as we continue to walk through, last week we looked in John chapter 4 and we saw the importance of God-focused worship, asking what it is that God is seeking from us in worship. And today we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 6, looking at the idea of wholehearted worship, worshiping God with all that we are and all that we have. And here this morning we'll see this central idea that God deserves and requires wholehearted worship. God deserves and requires wholehearted worship. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, if you have your Bible there, we'll begin reading in verse 4 and read down through verse 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Well, we're in Deuteronomy chapter 6 this morning, and Deuteronomy is the fifth book in our Bibles, the fifth of what we know as the Pentateuch, penta meaning five, the first five books, the books of Moses. But if you were to flip forward one book in your Bible, you'd come to the book of Joshua. Now, the book of Joshua represents an important transition in Scripture, but also in the life of Israel, because up to this moment, the nation of Israel has been led by Moses. In fact, Moses looms larger than any other leader in the history of Israel up to this point. And as you enter the book of Joshua, you kind of expect it to be the crowning of a new leader, but what we find there in Joshua is actually a funeral. Imagine that you're you're the new leader, Everyone's going to celebrate, but the first thing we find is after the death of Moses. You see, Moses is a larger-than-life person. And there in Joshua chapter 1, Joshua's book, 11 times in that first chapter, we find Moses, 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 Moses. Because you see, Moses is the leader of God's people in what is the formative, the most significant redemptive event in the Old Covenant. That is the Exodus, leading God's people from bondage in Egypt to freedom and the promised land. It's a picture of what's to come in Christ. And not only this, Moses is a powerful leader, but he was a prophet unlike any other. Exodus 32 through 34 After God has given the law, so Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, several chapters later, Moses comes down from the mountain in Exodus 32, and when he comes down from the mountain, he sees the people, and they're partying and worshiping a metal cow, a golden calf. Moses is so grieved by what he sees that he takes these tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, he dashes them and breaks them in pieces, and then he chastises the people, he grinds this idol to dust pours it in water, and he makes them drink it. The bitter taste reminding them of the bitterness of their sin. But in that moment, Moses, while chastising God's people, also stood between the people and God's judgment. Exodus 34.10, there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. 
See, Moses had just been on the mountain. God had spoken with him in person in a way that he never had with anyone else. When Moses comes down, he knows that the people deserve to die, but he uses his own street cred. He puts his reputation on the line and pleads with God not to destroy his people. And for all the mighty power, Exodus 34 goes on, and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel, there is none like him for all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do. It would be hard to overestimate the amount of influence that Moses has in the nation of Israel. So we find ourselves here in Deuteronomy chapter 6 in the middle of Moses' ministry. And this is likely the high point of his preaching ministry. He does all kinds of miracles, but in this moment he's preaching a sermon. Deuteronomy chapter 5 reiterates the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses says, in light of what you have heard, here is how you must live. Moses is the leader of God's people, but he's not just a leader. Time and time again, he has been the mediator, the one to go between God's people and God himself and plead God's mercy on the people. And the first thing in this moment, in what is perhaps the high point of his preaching ministry, Moses calls the people to listen carefully to God's word. Listen carefully to God's word. The first word in verse 4 is here. For centuries, the Jewish people have called this passage the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word we have here to hear or to listen. In fact, Orthodox Jews today still recite these verses twice a day. You ever have this experience uh, if if you could have a, a young child you could have children that are a little older, could be at work, and, and you're trying to communicate. You're trying to speak to the person, and you're talking, hey, you know, here's what you need to do. And, and the child's just going along, and they're going on about their life, and they're not listening. And then you say, no, 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 listen to me. In that moment, you're emphasizing to that person how important it is that right now you listen to my words. And that's exactly what's going on here. Here, listen to my words. You see, to shema is to listen carefully, to obey. It's not just hearing, it's hearing with the anticipation of doing. Verse 1 uses back-to-back-to-back words to emphasize that what we're hearing are the commands of God. This is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. You see, we cannot worship God if we don't first hear from God. We can't worship God if we don't know who God is. We hear from God by opening our Bibles and hearing the words he's already spoken. The first step to wholehearted worship is filling our whole lives with the whole word of God. We cannot love God if we do not know God. And we begin to truly understand God's word when we see it's not merely a book of instructions. He's issuing commandments. But it's not merely instructions. It's not merely a love letter from God, although it does include affirmations of God's love for us. Before God's word is a book of instruction, before it's a love letter, it is primarily a book of revelation. In other words, it reveals to us God and his saving purposes in Jesus Christ. It's revelation before it's anything else. 
Now, for the person that comes to God's word, now, there are people that don't take God's word seriously. So we're going to set that aside for a moment, and we're going to pretend that we take God's word seriously. We might come to it with a prayer like we find in Psalm 119, verse 18, Lord, would you open my eyes to behold wonderful things in your word? And for that person, there are two approaches that we can take. We can come to God's word looking for instructions. God, I I want to know what to do. I want to know how to live. Would you tell me? Would you, would you instruct me? Would you help me know how to live? The first person comes looking for instruction. But there's a second approach that we can take to God's word, and it's an approach I commend to us this morning. And that is a person that comes to God's word not looking primarily for instruction, but seeking God himself. You see, it's something altogether different to come to God's word and say, God, would you show me who you are? God, would you reveal your character, your person, your work to me in your word? It's a book of revelation. I didn't come here by myself this morning. My family is here as well, including my wife, Liz. Now, this, a couple months ago, we celebrated 14 years of marriage. Now, imagine with me that in 14 years, this is how I have approached my relationship with Liz. Every time it's time for me to think through, I say, Liz, tell me what to do. Liz, tell me what to do. Liz, what what do you want for dinner? What what do you want me to get you for Christmas? What do you want me to get you for your anniversary? And I, I never take the time to actually know Liz. The only way I approach her is with just verbal instruction. Tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. I'd be 14 years into this relationship, and we'd still be in this, like, command, obey kind of relationship. But I can tell you right now this morning, there are a lot of things I still don't understand about the female mind, including the the mind of my own wife. But there is one thing I do understand very clearly. If I had here this morning, in each hand, a white chocolate candy bar and a dark chocolate candy bar, I don't have to ask Liz, which would you choose? I know. Dark chocolate every time. There is no chocolate worth eating that's not dark chocolate. Dark chocolate is infinitely better than that milky, milk toast chocolate. White chocolate isn't even real chocolate, but dark chocolate, that's worth eating. Well, how do I know that? Because relationship. You know, you can approach life, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, and there are times where that needs to happen. But ultimately, over time, you want to be living with people in a relationship where you understand because you know the person. Because there's that level of relationship. You see, the first, tell me, tell me, tell me, is a tedious, rather dry obligation. God, tell me, God, tell me, God, tell me, God, tell me. God, show me. God, let me see you. God, can I know you? And to know a person, the revelation of a person is infinitely greater than just knowing mindless instruction. The second is a vibrant relationship. You see, we can't worship God wholeheartedly if we don't know God's word. So we listen carefully to God's word to see God clearly in his word. Hear, O Israel. And then look at the second half of verse 4. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You see, devotion to God comes from understanding who God is. Well, this sentence is a bit tricky because there's no verb actually in this sentence. The text actually reads like this, the Lord, our God, the Lord, one. As we sit here this morning, we can accept this, and yet it can be a bit tricky at the same time. 
don't we, as New Testament Christians, believe in the Father, Son, and Spirit, three gods, yet one? And we see this in the very first pages of Scripture, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. The Lord speaks as a singular being, but he says, let us make man in our image. He speaks as one being, yet speaks of himself as a complex being, three in one. So what's going on here in Deuteronomy 6? Is the Lord three or one? Well, clearly the answer is yes. As the New City Catechism puts it, there are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Or as the well-known hymn, Holy, 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 puts it, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. It's a tri-unity, one God, three persons. So back to verse 4. The word here, the Lord is one, can be translated one and often is, but it can also mean unique or alone. So verse 4 isn't addressing the question of how many is God or how many gods are there, one. It's rather addressing the identity of God. The question isn't how many are God, the question is who is God, to which the answer is a resounding, the Lord is God, the Lord alone. There is one God and you are hearing from him. He alone is worthy of worship. Verse 13 makes this clear. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Verse 14, you shall not go after other gods. Verse 15, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of you, the Lord your God be kindled against you and he wipe you from the face of the earth. Now we live in the new covenant era, a day of grace and mercy, thank God. But the nature of our eternal God never changes. As James 1 puts it, there is no variation, not even a shadow of change in God's character. God is a jealous God. He demands our worship. And if God demanded anything less, he wouldn't be God. If he alone deserves worship, if he is the unique being, the only one in the universe worthy of worship, he'd be violating his own nature to say that it's worth worshiping anything else. God and God alone is worthy of worship, and he knows this, which is what brings us to the central command of this passage in verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Love God wholeheartedly in light of his word. In Matthew chapter 22, we find Jesus, as he often is, engaged in a debate with religious leaders, and a very intelligent lawyer comes to Jesus, and you know, lawyers can trip you up, and they ask him, which of all 613 commandments in the Old Testament, of all these commands, which is the most important? Jesus, though, has an advantage because he's the one who wrote the law, and so he answers brilliantly this passage. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the essence of what it means to worship God wholeheartedly. Love God with all that you are and all that you have. Now the context in Deuteronomy is obedience to the law. Obey the Lord's commands. But obedience in God's kingdom has never been about some mindless submission separate from a relationship. See, true obedience is obedience from the heart. All your heart. All your soul. All your mind. The heart, that's the inner essence of a person. It's who we are in our very core. Sometimes it's like the word guts. It's down in the depth of our being. All our soul, we see that in Genesis chapter 2. The Lord breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living creature. Same word, living creature, living soul. 
might or strength is a reference to our commitment to living out God's commands with our actions. In other words, our love for God inside flows out into every aspect of our lives. Now, some of you might know this by proxy, but some of you know this. Have you ever had game day where maybe you're high school, college, and you're playing, I don't know, soccer, baseball, basketball, volleyball, whatever, and you wake up and it's game day. And that day, the air smells a little cleaner, a little crisper. You've got a little bit of adrenaline flowing through your, your, your veins. Like, you know it's, it's game day. You wake up, you're a little more excited, and, and you're ready to go. You've got all of this potential energy, and you can feel it building toward this moment. Now, some of y'all feel like this every Saturday, and it's not even your game. You wake up, and it's college game day. And you get this adrenaline running through your veins. It's game day. Well, imagine that you have all of this potential energy. You've got this uh, adrenaline. You've got this running through your veins. And you never actually get in the game. Like, the whole point of all this preparation, the whole point of all the excitement, the pep rally, the, the fans, the noise, the cheering, the whole point of all of that is what's going on on the field. Imagine that you spend your entire life pretending it's game day and never getting in the game. That's a fantasy world that no one wants to, it's, it's, like, it's like a dream that will never end. Like the point of game day is the game. It ultimately should spring to life in physical action. And to love God with all that we are and all that we have means that we experience the feeling of knowing we are deeply loved by God. That's that game day feeling. That's beginning to understand what it means for the creator of the universe to look out on people unworthy of his love and shed his affection on them. And it builds in you this emotional energy, this response as you begin to meditate and it soaks into your soul. God loves me. He doesn't generally love people. He loves me. And it builds in you this anticipation, this emotional energy. That's game day. But if you never respond to that emotion without then living out the love of God in your relationships with other people, that's like never playing the game. And we can't separate our love for God and others from God's love for us. But if we never live that love out in relationship to others, we're also misunderstanding the nature of God's love for us. You see, we can't love God without understanding that he first loved us. 1 John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. But if you don't love others, you don't know God. Because 1 John 4 also tells us you don't know God because God is love. Well, how do we see this love? 1 John 4, 10, in this is love. That he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's love is displayed in Jesus Christ. You see, God gives a command to Deuteronomy and Deuter or to, to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that they will fail in. Jesus repeats this same command for us, and we fail in living out this command. So the fact that Jesus came as a propitiation means that he satisfied the anger of God against our 
failure. What kind of love is that? To love someone, to require of them that they love you, and then to fulfill that command for them because they can't do it themselves. It's unbelievable that God would give us this kind of love. See, love isn't merely an idea. It's not merely an esoteric, ethereal feeling. It appeared in flesh and blood. It walked, it talked, it hung on a cross in shame and died for all of our failures to obey God's commands. See, Jesus perfectly loved God. Jesus perfectly loved his neighbor to the point where he bore the punishment for his neighbor's crime. There are two ways that we can look at the sacrifice of Jesus. Sometimes we, we look at this as a ticket. I pray this prayer, I get my ticket out of hell, and I'm off. But a relationship with Christ isn't a ticket that you buy and hope that when you show up at heaven's gates, you can turn in your ticket and get into heaven. A relationship with Christ is a boarding pass. It's not just taking a ticket and hoping one day you can use it. It's receiving Christ and hopping fully in the train with Christ. And the rest of life, you're on this train. You're in Christ. You live and you move and everything you do is in this sphere. Christ is your reality. Christ is changing the way you look at the world around you. See, the saddest thing is for someone who doesn't understand this to think that one moment in time, somewhere in the past, you prayed or thought or said you did this thing that you thought was your ticket. And one day you show up at the train station only to see that the train has already left. Because a relationship with Christ isn't something that just purchases future benefits, although it certainly does that. It's the beginning of a relationship with Christ that continues until then forever. It's not something just for future enjoyment. God, would you save me? I got my ticket and I go live my life. No, it's hopping on that gospel train and riding it forever. He is your reality. He changes who you are from the inside out. You understand that he fulfilled this commandment in ways that you never could. Oh, brother or sister, if you are here, you think you have your ticket, but you have no relationship with Christ, you will show up one day to find out that the train has already left the station. Would you turn from pursuing life in this world and pursue Christ with all that you are and all that you have? Would you trust him today? Now, when God owns every part of us and we love God with every part of us, then we know God's word personally. God wrote the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone at Mount Sinai. When Moses came down from the mountain, the people are partying. He breaks those commandments. The first set of commandments, God wrote. The second set, he had Moses. He required Moses to etch these same commandments in stone. You can imagine how tedious that would be. Chip, 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 chip. I think he wanted them to remember. Now, when we're working out a policy or thinking through something, we say something like, well, it's not set in stone. But what's more permanent than carving something in stone? carving it in your heart. And in verse 6, that's what the Lord says, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Then we arrive in the New Testament and Jesus links these two commands. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Our obedience to God's word demonstrates our love for God's person. 
So Deuteronomy commands us to put God's word in our hearts. But the way, the way God works is, is, is just kind of mind-blowing here because he reverses the flow of the law. So here the command is put God's word in your heart. When you arrive in Jeremiah 31, we arrive at the new covenant. And God says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. So under the parameters of the old covenant, Deuteronomy, we are responsible to write God's word in our hearts. But under the new covenant, God writes his word in our hearts. So does this mean we don't devote ourselves into God's word if he's responsible for us? It just means that the flow of the old covenant and the flow of the new covenant are actually flowing in opposite directions. In the old covenant, we must obey to receive God's blessings. If we don't, God will destroy us. The new covenant, Christ has obeyed and earned all of God's blessings for us. Ephesians 1 says that he gives us these blessings in Christ. Therefore, because Christ has done this, out of love, obey me. But our obedience earns nothing. Christ has already earned everything. The flow of these commandments is completely opposite. We devote ourselves to God's word wholeheartedly because of all that God has done for us in Christ. We know this is right because God has written it in our hearts. I mean, isn't this crazy? So, God writes the Ten Commandments, they're broken, he makes Moses write the Ten Commandments. Then God takes his law and he writes it again, but this time he writes it in our hearts. Imagine uh, with me that, uh, you know, I don't know, five, six, seven o'clock, sometime in the evening, you hit the end of your workday, it's time to head home. And so I'm kind of tracking through my life at the same time. And so I go home. And I walk in the door, and that act of going home, I enter it with the hopes that I can earn the love of the people in that house. Like, by being there, I hope then that they'll love me if I show up. So I keep showing up day after day, hoping, hoping to earn their affection, hoping to earn their love. What kind of life is that? It's a terrible life. If every day you're hoping that when you get home you can earn that person's affection, but imagine instead that I exist in a relationship with these people. And I show up because of that relationship, and I do all the very same things. I show up at home not to earn their affection, but because we share affection. And then suddenly the very same actions are life-giving. They're affection-building. They're relationship-affirming. See, we don't approach our relationship with God, I'm going to read my Bible in the hopes that God will love me. I'm going to take communion in the hopes that I can receive God's affection. I'm going to go to the church in the hope that God will somehow shower some blessing on me. I'm going to put something in the offering plate that hopefully God will somehow show some level of love for me because I'm doing all this for him. Friends, that completely misses, misunderstands the nature of the gospel itself. God says, I have given you my affection. So we show up at church, we put it in the offering plate, we read our Bibles not to earn God's affection, but because God has already loved us. We're not there to earn anything. Christ has already earned it for us. 
There's nothing we can add to what Christ has done. So we devote ourselves to God's word, and then we must also teach God's word diligently. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you lie down. Now, the language here is interesting because the first you is plural. Y'all shall teach them. So this is a command that God is giving to everyone, everybody. Everyone receives this. But the second your is singular. Y'all shall teach them diligently to your children. In other words, there's a collective context for this command, but a personal responsibility for each one of us. You see, in God's design, parents are the primary disciplers of their children, and the church comes alongside with, partners with, assists parents in the discipleship of their children. Now, sometimes we think of discipleship for kids like this. Like, we just get them in the car, we get them to church, and then they take care of that. But that's not what we see here in God's word. The scriptural weight is on parents primarily. You see, the most essential ingredient to a child knowing Jesus and walking with Jesus isn't getting them to church so the church can take care of it. It's having parents that know Jesus and walk with Jesus. It's having parents that worship Jesus. The most important ingredient in a child's life is parents that love and model and teach their children what it means to love Jesus. Paul makes this point in Ephesians 6. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. In other words, Paul writes that within the church, and says that in the church, parents teach their children God's words and God's ways. Psalm 78, the Lord commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. So there are a couple of implications. There are many more, but a couple that we're going to lean into here. And the first is this, that parents, and fathers especially, we must be leading our families to worship Christ at home and with the church. It's not something that we can pass off to someone else. I mean, leading family worship is one of the trickiest yet most important things that you can do as a father, unless you think, well, it's easy for you to say, you know, you do this every week. Leading family worship, it's one of the trickiest things I do. I'm, I'm much more comfortable doing this than I'm doing that. My wife is, I, I, and I, this, there's, there, there's no sense of false humility. She would deny this, but it's true. she's way better at it than I am. It's just true. She's better at teaching the kids than I am. But I cannot pass off this God-given responsibility to someone else. We can praise God that it happens in these other places, but we must own the responsibility of leading our families to God and to his word. That's one implication. But the second is, that we have to change the way we think about church programming. Remember, we're going to set aside our presuppositions, just come to the Word of God. Now, we often think we need programs for the kids, and that, that's not wrong or sinful, but the most important thing for our kids isn't that there are programs for the kids. The most important thing for your children is that you are being fed the Word, and that you are leading your family to receive the Word, and that you are participating in corporate worship as a family. I mean, all these things are okay. Some of them are even really good. But the gathered worship of the people of God is essential. And if you know kids, we see this in kids' lives. Put a plate in front of our children. On this plate, squash, 
green beans, cauliflower, and a dinner roll. You tell me what gets eaten first. The dinner roll. Now, is the dinner roll okay to eat? Yeah, I like it better too. Just be, I'm putting all my cards on the table. That's what I'd want to eat too. Now, I'm the opposite. I plow through everything I don't want to eat so I can get to what I want to eat. The dinner roll is, is good. Every child wants that dinner roll, but we know that's not enough. It's not sufficient nutrition. It's, it's good. It's fine. But as churches, we often focus so much on the dinner roll of breakouts, classes, programs, special events, that we miss the importance of the essential nutrition of corporate worship. The read, preached, prayed, sung, seen word of God in the life of God's assembled people. But our worship here isn't compelling if it's not lived out in every aspect of our lives. Live God's word holistically. Look again at verse 7. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You see, there is no difference between the sacred and the secular. There should be no difference between the Friday night Joshua and the Sunday morning Joshua. How do we do this? Romans 12 tells us, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. You see, corporate worship isn't like the time we come, we act special to God. Corporate worship is the gathered expression of our lives that we're living in worship. It's the gathered expression of what we're doing personally. Corporate worship is essential but it is hypocritical if it's separate from the rest of our lives. When I was in college, I worked at a warehouse called Winn-Dixie Warehouse. Used, I don't know if there are any around. They kind of originated in Jacksonville, Florida, but Winn-Dixie grocery stores. Did they ever have those here? Any? Okay, you know. So I worked at a, a grocery warehouse, and uh, at the time I had kind of red floppy hair, so they called me Opie. Everyone kind of had a name, so I was Opie Taylor. And, uh, you know, you, you drive around in forklifts or pout jacks or boxes around. It was great. It wore me out, but it was a lot of fun. And I was, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, had a lot of energy. I threw myself into it, and I built friendships there. But one thing that was interesting was the, the people there knew I was a Christian. And so walk into the break room, and it's quiet. I didn't tell anyone to get quiet. didn't tell anyone to say anything, but they're like, it's here. In fact, I had some... I don't know to what degree they were like mob bosses outside the warehouse, but I had some people there who like literally like, hey, don't say that. Like they enforced like when I was in the room. I mean, because these men and ladies, Christ was the furthest thing from many of their minds. That experience it was, was interesting. You walk in and it just gets quiet. You know, like you're there and the temperature in the room changes. Well, from 2008 to 2018, I served... A church in Greenville, South Carolina, and then a church in Rockford, Illinois. In both cases, both churches are full of sinners, sometimes who are sinning very badly, uh, like I'm a sinner, and sometimes I sin badly, but I never had the experience that I've had where you walk in and it feels like that break room, where like the preachers here We 
we can't live the life we're living the rest of the time because he's here in a church. I'm concerned for the souls of people in our congregation who think that God is a lucky charm. That God's just something we we add. That Christ is a ticket. Doesn't save us to a life of walking with him. And I know, I know that, I do know that part of this is because there's a deficit of trust because of some pastors who haven't walked closely with Christ. I, I know that that at some level has been true. But I also know that it's true that there are some people who are more committed to the ritual of cultural Christianity than to a relationship with Christ. Ritual will not save you. A culture of Christianity will not save you. If we believed that this life and what we can see is all that there is, I'd be okay with it. Like if there weren't an eternal God, as Hebrews puts it, it's appointed to man once to die. After this, is the judgment. We're not trying to save people to a comfortable life here and now. We're trying to prepare them for that day. The day when we will all see the Lord. It wasn't just true for the Israelites. It's true for us. We cannot separate this worship from a life of worship. The last thing we'd want to do is build a culture where it's okay, it's expected that you don't know Christ. And the unusual thing is when someone walks in the door and seems to have a relationship with Christ. That's not because I'm a preacher. That's just what it means to walk with Jesus. It's what it means to be a follower of Christ, is to know Christ, to walk with Christ, to walk into your break room at work and they know there's a follower of Jesus here. The stakes are eternal. We can't separate wholehearted worship from whole life worship. And as a church, we bear this responsibility for one another's souls. We worship wholeheartedly here because we walk with him wholeheartedly out there. We can't separate the two. God's word reveals God's character to us. And when we see God, we love God and live this out in all of life. Let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.